few weeks ago, I was out in the wilderness, having just made a clean shot on a bear. I watched as it tumbled down into a meadow, landing lifeless on a log. I was stationed on a ridge above it and had to navigate a mile around, and had to navigate a mile around and down a drainage to reach the valley where it lay. Armed with my trusty pistol, I began the descent, leaving my rifle at the entrance of the drainage. The bear hadn't moved for twenty minutes since I had taken my shot from the ridge. But I've learned over the years that you can never be too cautious in the wild. The descent was a bit tricky, with the terrain transforming from an obvious path to a confusing expanse of scrub brush, trees and blueberries. As I was moving through a thicket, my head lowered and my arms working to part the dense foliage, I caught sight of a patch of white fur beneath my boot. I instinctively pulled back my step, and as I regained my composure I looked down to see a possum, teeth bared and hissing at me. I was taken aback at first, not expecting to encounter a possum at this altitude, but I quickly decided that I didn't want any trouble with a biting creature. A quick shot from my point forty took care of the issue, and my adrenaline was definitely pumping. Just when I thought I had my fill of wildlife encounters for the day, I stepped into another clearing. As I emerged from the undergrowth, I froze. There, just at the edge of the tree line, was a massive creature covered in dark fur. It stood on two legs, easily towering over eight feet tall. The creature was broad and muscular, with arms that hung low and a head that seemed to sit directly on its shoulders. I was a distance away, but I could make out its eyes, two dark points set in a heavily browed face. My heart pounded in my chest as I realized I was looking at what could only be Bigfoot. Creature didn't seem to notice me, or at least didn't acknowledge my presence. It seemed to be foraging, its massive hands pulling at the branches of a tree. I watched in disbelief for a few long moments before the creature moved deeper into the forest and disappeared from sight. As I finally reached the bear, my mind was a whirl of the day's events. I had come out for a bear, and while I did get one, I had also encountered a possum and, most incredibly, sighted Bigfoot. It was a day I knew I would never forget. In the aftermath of the world's devastation, our small community struggled to survive. Food was scarce, and the once familiar landscapes had transformed into a mutated wasteland. As one of the skilled hunters in our group, it was my responsibility to venture into the unknown and bring back the resources we desperately needed. We set off a small band of hardened hunters, each an expert in their own right. But I had a knack for improvising traps and weapons that often made the difference between life and death. As we journeyed further into the mutated wasteland, we encountered creatures that defied belief. Some were grotesque amalgamations of animals we had once known, while others were entirely new species born of the catastrophe. We fought and killed many of these monstrous creatures, and I devised a series of creative and deadly methods to dispatch them. One such trap involved rigging a tripwire to a deadfall, crushing a reptilian beast that boasted scaly armor and razor-sharp teeth. Another time, I crafted a makeshift spear from a broken tree branch and took down a massive six-legged creature with the precision of a skilled marksman. But our most harrowing encounter came when we were ambushed by the most powerful and deadly creature we had ever faced. The beast stood on four muscular legs, 
its twisted form covered in spiked armored plating. Its eyes glowed with a malevolent intelligence that sent chills down our spines. We were outmatched, and one by one, my fellow hunters fell to the creature's relentless onslaught. As the last surviving hunter, I knew I had to find a way to defeat the beast. Drawing upon my knowledge of the creature's habits and weaknesses, I devised a plan. I studied the predator's scent, marking habits and chemical communication, using my findings to create a synthetic pheromone to lure the creature into a trap. By placing the pheromone in strategic locations, I was able to manipulate the predator's movements and create an opportunity to strike. The beast approached the trap, its keen senses drawn to the irresistible scent. As it closed in, I sprang into action, launching my carefully prepared attack that finally brought the creature down. Exhausted and battered, I knew my fallen comrades would not have died in vain. When I returned to our community, I brought not only much needed resources, but also tales of our harrowing encounters and a newfound appreciation for the power of human ingenuity. Our world might have changed beyond recognition, but the resilience and adaptability of the human spirit remained a force to be reckoned with. Yesterday, me and a friend decided to go to the nearby woods to smoke a bowl and hang out. This wooded area is rather small, but has lots of dense brush, giving us lots of dense brush, giving us lots of cover. I brought my brand new Glocka tool and a can of Sabre Red OK just in case. We went into the woods a decent distance and smoked a bowl. I was going to repack the bowl when I suddenly heard some very loud and very close footsteps right behind me. I didn't see the guy since I was preoccupied with grabbing my backpack, but my friend did. He described him as maybe a uh, 5 feet 11 white male in his 50s, wearing a white shirt and a cap. He had snuck up behind us in a wooded area full of dense brush and dry leaves until he was a mere five yards away, at which point he started to speed walk towards us without saying a word. We both made it out of there and took cover behind a rotting log, where we joked about how Sam Fisher just attacked us. I personally feel like someone wouldn't be that stealthy just to sneak up on two kids smoking weed and that he may have had some bad motive or something. I can post pictures of the location if you guys request it. In 1992 or 93, I hiked up Mule Mountain from a ridge on the southeast end. I was about one quarter mile from the mountain walking through a small bunch grass meadow enclosed with old growth. First, elk hunting. It was unusually quiet, so I was walking as softly as possible. I had stopped to listen and watch, when off to my right from deep in the timber I heard very clearly and loudly, a sound like someone blowing across the mouth of a soda bottle. It wasn't a bear woofing. There were three split-second bursts in rapid succession, followed by a loud, guttural, gurgling call, similar to a deep trill. At sixty years of age, at sixty years of age, I have spent a majority of my life in the Oregon woods, but have never heard these sounds before or since. It stirred what I call the caveman response, a deep primeval fear that immediately throws you into the fight-or-flight mode. I left by the shortest route possible back to my truck. <laughs> 
I've never returned to that area. It's as if my instincts tell me not to, that there's something that didn't want me there. My buddy and I had a tradition of hiking deep into the backwoods, where human footprints were few and far between. A silent, serene world, where our conversations were the only disturbance to the constant symphony of nature. That's where our story begins. Way out there, with nobody in sight. One particular evening, as the sun dipped below the horizon, I began to gather some wood for a campfire. Picking up sticks here and there, my eyes landed on a stick that stood out from the rest. It was about five feet long, about three inches wide, the perfect size for a walking stick. Excitement coursed through me as I picked it up. It was straight and mostly smooth, the ideal companion for long hikes. What was really surprising was that one end was smoother than the rest. A thought bubbled up in my mind. Had I stumbled upon a fellow hiker's discarded walking stick, my fingers traced the meticulously whittled end, admiring the craftsmanship. But as my eyes took in the details, I realized with an escalating sense of disbelief that it wasn't a handle, not even close. It was, unmistakably and irrevocably, a penis. A phallic masterpiece carved into the end of this seemingly innocent stick. I was holding a literal dick stick. My initial shock quickly morphed into odd fascination. This wasn't just a quick, crude job done out of adolescent boredom. This was a work of art, carved with purpose, precision, and, bizarrely enough, affection. The details were intricate, right down to the carefully etched veins running along its length. Whoever had created this had invested hours, if not days, crafting this unique piece of art. Stunned, I showed it to my buddy, whose wide-eyed expression mirrored my own. We burst into laughter, the echoing sound a stark contrast to the silence of the surrounding wilderness. There, under the stars, we shared a moment of surreal hilarity, the product of someone's bizarre pastime. From that day forward, our hikes took on an extra dimension. Every stick picked up was scrutinized, and our campfire stories had a new, undeniably strange champion. Forrest, it seemed, held secrets far peculiar than we could have ever imagined. In high school, I went with my friends to an abandoned construction site during a full moon to have some beers on the roof and look at the view. It was high on a hill. As we were leaving, they offered me ten dollars to go down and walk around in the pitch black basement, me lacking any belief in the paranormal. This seemed like an easy way to make ten bucks. I went down the stairs with my phone light on, but when I reached the bottom and turned the corner, I turned off my light because I was fairly sure my friends were going to try to scare me and figured I might be able to get the upper hand on them. At this point, I also turned on a video with no flash because I wanted to catch their fear firsthand. Video might be on my computer somewhere. I whispered to the video something about being off the grid and began waiting. I waited around the corner for a couple minutes but heard nothing. Then I began to hear what sounded like large rocks being dropped down the stairway to the basement. This seemed like the perfect start to my buddy's scaring tactics, so I thought nothing of it. The sounds continued for a while, 
and eventually I got bored, as it seemed they were too scared to actually come down the stairs, and started slowly making my way out the other side of the unfinished basement. When I reached the car, everyone wanted to know where I had been and what took me so long. Again, I assumed this must have been a tactic to freak me out. But then I realized everyone that had come with me was in the car, and there would have been no one in the house to continue dropping the rocks as I was leaving. There was no way someone could have made it back to the car before me while continuing to drop the rocks and avoid me seeing them. I still don't at all believe in ghosts or the like, but I wonder if there was maybe a squatter or someone else in the blackness with me who was trying to scare me away. The scariest part was that I had absolutely no fear about the incident as it was happening. But looking back on it, I should have run out of there screaming. Easily the scariest thing I've ever been a part of. My name is Lieutenant Commander Jack Diaz, and I'm the team leader of an elite group of Navy SEALs. When we were told that a CIA operative had gone missing in North Korea, we knew we were in for a hell of a mission. As it turned out, it was far worse than we could have imagined. Our insertion into North Korea was as quiet as a whisper, the night sky providing us the perfect cover. The operative's last known location was an isolated compound in the mountains. We moved swiftly, avoiding patrols and staying off the grid. Upon reaching the compound, we quickly realized this wasn't just a holding site. We stumbled upon a full-blown bioweapon facility. It was a chilling sight. Vials of deadly pathogens, blueprints of dispersal methods, and chilling indications of test trials. We realized we were standing in the heart of a potential global catastrophe. Our mission suddenly expanded. We had to rescue the operative, dismantle this operation, and get out alive. Tensions on the Korean peninsula were high. Any misstep could ignite a war. We made our way deeper into the facility. It was there we found him. The captive operative. But this was no stranger. I recognized him instantly. It was Ghost, a former SEAL, a brother. We thought he had died years ago in a mission gone sideways. Seeing him again, battered but alive, it was a shock. With renewed determination, we fought our way through the facility, neutralizing guards and sabotaging their operation. Ghost, even in his weakened state, fought alongside us. He was a SEAL through and through. We set charges along the facility, ready to wipe this nightmare off the map. But we were running out of time. North Korean reinforcements were closing in, and we were still deep within enemy territory. The fight out of the facility was fierce. We moved as one, covering each other's backs, just like old times. Ghost was with us, moving with the fluid grace that we remembered. As we made our last sprint towards our extraction point, we detonated the charges. The facility went up in a blaze, the bioweapons and their sinister plans incinerated. Our chopper whisked us away just as enemy reinforcements swarmed the area. We were battered, bruised, but victorious. As we crossed the border, we shared a look of relief. Ghost was back with us, and we had averted a potential global catastrophe. But we knew our fight wasn't over. Ghost's existence, the bio-weapons facility... It was all part of something bigger, something more dangerous. But whatever it was, we were ready. 
We were SEALs, and we never backed down from a fight. When I was seven, I was camping with my parents and baby sister in Virginia. We were staying in a campground specifically for RVs, but there were also some cabins available to rent. On the first day there, after being constantly pestered to take me to the park, my dad complained to my mom that I was old enough to walk the short distance to the park and play without supervision. My mom has always been very overprotective and a worrier, and even more so after this camping trip. My mom finally gave in and allowed me to go alone to the campground park. While at the playground, I met a little girl around my own age, and we played together for a while. She was also by herself. I invited her to come back to my RV to play with Barbies with me, and we headed in that direction. On the way, we crossed paths with my parents, who were going to another family's RV to visit and socialize. We let them know we were going to play Barbies in my family's RV. After we played for a little while, she suggested we pack up the Barbies and go to the cabin. She and her grandparents were staying in to play with her Barbies too, which we did. It never even occurred to me that my parents didn't know this girl or her family or where I would have gone. They had assumed we were going to stay in my RV and play. We played at her cabin for a long time, and while we played... Her grandparents were packing up their things and preparing to leave the campground. When they were all packed up to go, they said they would drop me back off at my RV on their way so I wouldn't have to walk. Obviously, my parents had always told me to never get in a car with a stranger, and I knew this. But it just never occurred to me that this was exactly what they meant. I genuinely never felt remotely afraid or concerned about the situation. The little girl's grandparents packed up their car, and we all climbed in. We stopped at the campground's general store, and her grandpa bought us both ice cream cones. All I could think was how nice and generous her family was. We got back in the car, and I assumed they would next be dropping me off, and I assumed they would next be dropping me off at my Irv. I sat in the car, eating my ice cream and talking with my friend, completely oblivious to the outside of the car. Suddenly, my door flew open and my dad, with tears pouring down his cheeks, yanked me out of the car and hugged me harder than he ever had in my life. I was so confused, and then the car I was in sped away, very quickly. It was then that I realized that we were at the exit of the campground. Apparently, upon returning to our RV and finding my new friend and me gone without a trace, my parents had contacted the ranger station and a lot of people were out looking for me, in the woods and going door to door to door to the other RVs. My dad just happened to be walking by as he saw me in the people's car just about to leave the campground. I don't know who those people were, but they definitely had no intention of bringing me back to my parents. I think the ice cream was bought to distract me from noticing we weren't heading in the direction of my own campsite. Over the years... I've often thought of that day and how different my life could be if my dad hadn't seen me just in the nick of time. I remember that day clearly. I was in the kitchen, phone pressed to my ear, lost in conversation with my sister. As we chatted, I found myself idly watching the hillside across the creek through the kitchen window. My dogs were causing a ruckus outside their barks echoing through the quiet of the afternoon. Curiosity peaked. 
I squinted trying to see what had them so worked up. That's when I noticed the bushes. They were rustling, leaves swaying in a rhythm that didn't match the gentle breeze of the day. And then, amidst the greenery, I saw it. A figure. It was tall, broad and stout, covered in long, dark brown hair. It almost resembled a human, but there was something distinctly primal, almost ape-like about it. For a solid two minutes, I just stared, my mind struggling to make sense of what I was seeing. It moved through the bushes, causing leaves to quiver in its wake before it vanished as abruptly as it had appeared. The whole time, I was on the phone with my sister, narrating the event in hushed, awestruck whispers. A wave of excitement washed over me, followed swiftly by a sharp jolt of fear. I quickly locked the door and rushed to check for my husband's 12-gauge. Safety first, right? I didn't see the creature, the Sasquatch, after that day, but every now and then my dogs would bark in that same peculiar, whimpering way, a bark different from their usual. It always made me wonder if they sensed its presence. Years later, my sister was watching a documentary about Sasquatch sightings in the Portland, Oregon area on the Learning Channel. It aired on Friday, October 27th, 2000, and it brought back memories of our phone conversation that day. She called me excitement evident in her voice. She called me excitement evident in her voice. She had done some research and found this website, and she urged me to document my sighting. It was a surreal experience, one that has stayed with me even after all these years. The memory of the creature and the rustling bushes is as clear as day, a reminder of the mysteries that our world still holds. I worked as a ranger in Northern Carolina for well over 20 years. I've had my fair share of weird happenings and some gruesome ones too. I found multiple dead bodies during my time working there. All of the killers were luckily brought to justice by the police. But it's not the killings that got me to quit my job and never come back. It was something a little more unexplainable. Something so weird, in fact, that I sometimes still wonder if it was all just a dream or vision or indeed a real event. I'll tell you exactly what I saw from the beginning. It was the middle of August, and the sun was scorching the ground with its rays. Not many people visited during the day for obvious reasons. I hated when I had to leave my guard hut to make a tour of the park. That would usually include a lot of sweating and feeling like somebody is roasting you in a pan. I was already pretty beat during my first two hours, drinking more than enough water to try and keep hydrated. As it was already time to go out for the third and final tour of the day, because for the next shift, another ranger was going to replace me, I went on a walk. About halfway through, I started feeling dizzy and a little lost. I felt weaker and weaker, up until I could not stand anymore. I sat under a nearby tree to try and get some rest and regain strength, but the sun and heat were too strong. I began seeing things and just felt a little too real. The tall, shadowy figures began emerging from behind trees, walking slowly and aimlessly. I couldn't move or breathe properly, so I just sat there staring back at them. In a minute, there were so many of them, 
I lost count and more began emerging straight from the ground. I was confident that I had had a severe sunstroke. They didn't seem to pay any attention to me at first. They just wandered around and let out horrific screams of pain like somebody being cooked alive. Just then, one of those figures had noticed me slowly making its way. It was over eight feet tall, so it had to crouch down to get close to me. I was petrified, but I didn't possess the strength to do anything. Figure didn't stop screaming for a split second either. It just crouched next to me and put its hand on my cheek. I started to burn. I lost consciousness. Other rangers found me passed out on the ground about an hour later, getting me to an ambulance. I was relieved for a minute, but when I got up from the bed, I saw that red burning handprint. It terrified me so much I had to resign. None of my bosses or colleagues ever believed me. I guess I can't say I blame them. 